Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be together. Lord God, I pray that you'll help me um, illuminate your word so that it is clear and helpful and encouraging. Lord God, I pray that you help everyone listening, that their connection will be clear, um, that we won't get any technical difficulties today, um, and that, Lord God, that we will uh, make up somewhat for not being able to physically meet. God, we thank you that you are Lord over this situation and Lord over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Excellent. Um, well, good morning. Uh, this is our second uh, live YouTube sermon. Uh, like last week, you're very welcome uh, to use the comments to say hi. Uh, try not to be too derogatory um, and uh, perhaps even something uh, sort of encouraging uh, while I speak. So the sermon will go on uh, till around 11. Uh, and then we'll have a Zoom conference. So the details are on the website, on the text I sent out, um, and on our Facebook page. Um, so hopefully you'll be able to connect with that. We're going to sing maybe sort of uh, three songs um, that I've selected, um, and then we'll sort of uh, talk in the breakout rooms where you're sort of randomly assigned uh, uh, to go together. Um, I wonder if you have ever simply wandered around uh, a big city. Um, so I'm not talking about you sort of uh, uh, get your train ticket or your bus ticket and sort of rush, dash in, uh, target like some specific uh, tourist attraction and then sort of head out again. But I'm talking about sort of sauntering into a city and, and spending time sort of soaking on, soaking in the ambience, the, uh, um, seeing the sort of rich variety and complexity of modern uh, metropolitan life. Uh, over the years I've, I've had the privilege of lazily sauntering around a number of sort of uh, cities around the world. I've been to uh, Dublin and London and Paris, New York, Amsterdam, Marrakesh, Edinburgh and even the uh, ancient city of Thebes uh, which is now called Luxor but I quite like the ancient city of Thebes uh, being where I've been. Um, each one's very different, you know, they're, they're, they're very much with their own languages and this, that and the other, but they do share this uh, marvellous characteristic. Uh, they, they share that despite it, them being in different places, um, they host, all of them, a wide variety, a breathtaking array of humanity. And this range of different people with that different backgrounds means that each city in itself is like a melting pot of culture and that can be found in, in each of these you know that they're, they're not uh, uh, a single landscape but they're like a fusion of all these different people from lots of different backgrounds coming together um, and so um, I've mooched around these cities and I've enjoyed the, uh, the smells of London's Chinatown um, you've, I've gone into uh, uh, the live music of uh, Dublin's Temple Bar. We've been to uh, uh, the intense trading and, and claustrophobia of Marrakesh's souks. Um, there's been the, uh, the bohemian flavour of Amsterdam's cafes. Um, the, the privilege and wealth and capitalism of Wall Street and the aesthetes of the same with the artists and the booksellers and each of the different people uh, bring something else to the civilization that they are part of. 
And as we think about these cities, as we think about the complexity uh, and array of humanity that are included in them, I want us to remember that first century uh, Jerusalem is no different. The uh, religious landscape was dominated, yes, by Herod's uh, reconstructed temple. You know, Solomon had built it and then it had been destroyed and, and Herod had kind of uh, elaborated on something that was rebuilt. Uh, but there was a language uh, and diverse society there uh, that was the quintessence of diversity. You know, there's people from all sorts of backgrounds in that city as there are in cities uh, today. Now, if you've been joining with us uh, in our Bible reading plan of Acts, you'll have come across that moment uh, in Acts 2 that it's often difficult to sort of read out, like at Pentecost or any other time, when there's a whole array of different people groups represented um, and where it lists a lot of different backgrounds for the people that heard those uh, first disciples speak um, in tongues. Uh, um, praising God. And I want to just look at a historian, um, a guy called uh, Montefort, um, and he describes uh, first century um, Jerusalem quite well, I think, um, in the first century. And it says this, at Passover, Jerusalem was at its most crowded and dangerous. Power was founded on money, rank and Roman connections. And you can hear this diversity. Uh, uh, but the Jews did not share the Roman respect for military kudos or cold cash. Respect in Jerusalem was based on family, temple magnates and Herodian princelings, scholarship, the Pharisee teachers, and the wild card of divine inspiration. And you, you sense, don't you, in, in, even in these words, the, uh, the range of different people uh, that made up this time. Now, uh, there's a Jewish historian called Josephus and and the uh, uh, historian Montefiore that I'm reading for says this. Josephus guessed that two and a half million Jews came for Passover. This is an exaggeration, but there were Jews out of every nation, from Parthia and Babylonia to Crete and Libya. The only way to imagine this throng is to see Mecca during the Hajj. At Passover, every family had to sacrifice a lamb, so the city was jammed with bleating sheep. 255,600 lambs were sacrificed. Just take in those different households and the mess and the noise. There was much to do. Pilgrims had to take a dip in a mikvah every time they approached the temple, as well as buy their sacrificial lambs in the royal portico. Not everyone could stay in the city. That's how many people uh, were around. Thousand lodged in the surrounding villages. Um, or camped around the walls, as the smell of burning meat and heady incense wafted and the trumpet blasts announcing prayers and sacrifices ricocheted across the city, everything was focused on the temple, nervously watched by the Roman soldiers from the Antonio Fortress. The masses walked into the towering colonnaded royal portico, the bustling, colourful, crowded centre of all life where pilgrims gathered to organise their accommodation to meet friends and to change money for the Tyrian silver used to buy sacrificial lambs, doves, or for the rich, oxen. This was not the temple itself, nor one of its inner courts, but the most accessible and public section of the entire complex, designed to serve like a forum. 
And so we find um, in the uh, historian's books this wonderful picture of Jerusalem rich and vibrant with uh, culture and uh, different people groups. And so this simple and obvious observation about city life uh, can lead us um, to the very first problem uh, that the first century church had. While the first converts were Jewish in their uh, uh, were Jewish in their sort of faith, their heritage and backgrounds were mottled and assorted. And in particular, we find it seems that there were two uh, distinct significant groups. There were the Hellenistic Jews um, who had come fr uh, from being dispersed around the Mediterranean. They're the ones that sort of spoke and wrote Greek. This was uh, the culture they were immersed in. And secondly, there were the Hebraic Jews and they're the ones that lived in Palestine. Jesus would have been a Palestinian Jew and they knew Aramaic. And this is the one uh, that they spoke and uh, they could understand uh, Hebrew um, as well. And one of the church's very first failures was uh, um, not to properly incorporate uh, both parts in all its activities. And we find the first crisis. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. Um, and it says this. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicana, Timon, Parmenaeus, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, there was a dominance, it seems, of Hebrew speakers in the congregation. Uh, and this led to the neglect of the Greek speakers. And when this problem was raised, everyone recognised that, uh, uh, that this is a problem that needed fixing, that it couldn't uh, uh, stay as it was. If, like uh, many in our church, you've been following Luke's account in Acts, if you've been following our Bible reading plan, um, you'll know that one of the characteristics of this ch first century church, of this new set of believers, was this wonderful mutual care and concern, this agape love. Um, and we're repeatedly given a, uh, a picture by Luke of Christians who fellowshiped uh, regularly, even daily, and who worked hard to look out for each other's needs. You know, they, they weren't just sort of a, a religious society that were all about uh, the singing and the preaching, but uh, their faith touched everything. And remember, there was no welfare state. Uh, there was no NHS. 
um, there were no benefits. All these uh, uh, safety nets of our society that we uh, appreciate and love and that uh, the little signs all around Bewbush now uh, in celebration for uh, and uh, um, like the rainbows. Um, so I went on a run uh, this morning way into uh, a sort of Buckingham and beyond and even these little uh, um, sort of uh, cottages out in the middle of nowhere have got these uh, appreciative uh, rainbows uh, for the NHS and, and, and we've learned to love it and, and really appreciate uh, uh, this crown jewel of our uh, uh, culture. But first century uh, Jerusalem was not like that and so another person's generosity was not just a nice thing to do, it was the difference between life and death. It wasn't just, oh that's nice, I'm glad you did that so I didn't have to. It's a case if you didn't do that, uh, my life might have been in danger. And in particular, Luke tells us um, that the wealthy in the congregation, those that owned land and property, would periodically sell their real estate and bring the proceeds to the church leaders. So again, you can taste, can't you, the, the richness of the Jerusalem church. It had the very poor and it had the very rich. And the very rich made sure that they uh, were responsible for the very poor. And they would sell their stuff purely to look after uh, the impoverished. Um, and it seems that this money um, uh, that was got from the selling of real estate would be put into a common fund. Uh, and then this common fund would be used to support uh, the destitute of the Christian community in Jerusalem. Now, in first century Palestine, uh, it, it was often the case that a successful household, or even just a normal household, would be made up of a husband who uh, often uh, uh, earned the uh, dominant income, and then a wife who would take care of the more domestic issues, and uh, the, the children, and, and maybe probably have a side job uh, as well, I don't know. Um, and the Christians who are widows uh, did not have the benefit of another half uh, bringing in the money. And, and so they had all the responsi domestic responsibilities, childcare responsibilities, but they didn't have someone to uh, um, sort of bring in the money. And, and so they often fell to the bottom of society. They became very vulnerable. Uh, and uh, they often are the ones that fade hardship. And every time that Luke particularly talks about widows, you'll find there is this care and concern for them uh, that Dr. Luke uh, really seems to have taken this on board. And so when it becomes clear that those dealing with the communal fund were inadvertently favouring the Hebrew speakers over the Greek speakers, People rightly spoke up. They said, you know what, this is unjust. We're supposed to be a church of love. You know, in God's kingdom, there's no difference between uh, uh, the different uh, peoples. Um, and, and so something needs to be done. And uh, I really like that, that, that someone said something. I love the fact that the early church leaders didn't try to justify that inequality or make excuses for it. You know, through the annals of history, uh, someone protests something and go, oh no, the status quo, we want to argue for this. These guys just said, yep, yeah, you've caught us bang to rights. This is a problem that needs to be sorted out. Um, and these church leaders, they recognised the injustice and they invited in the wider fellowship to help make a difference. They said, you know, we've got to sort this out. We've got to uh, redeem this situation. 
and I think just stopping there for a moment that this is an encouragement for uh, everyone in our fellowship in Enum Church Bubish uh, to speak up that when you see something unfair or unjust or inequitable that you will say no guys hold on we need to address this this is something that is not good and hopefully prayerfully you won't just be fobbed off uh, you won't merely find the status quo being justified hopefully the leaders will say you know what um, we don't can't tolerate inequality um, we can't tolerate unfairness we can't tolerate uh, uh, one group benefiting while the other uh, lacks now I can I admit uh, be very defensive about the status quo you know we sort of ran this church for 15 years and and the different uh, appearance of it is very much born out of experience and hard work and blood sweat and tears and so when someone says right this is wrong I can often feel quite defensive but this is a challenge to me as well as to you that we can't let these things uh, uh, rumble on that this is God's church and it should of all places be somewhere where fairness and justice and equitable treatment is triumph. So I want you to use this passage to sort of uh, think about how our church is run and, and what we get up to and what we pour our money into and say is this fair and just and, and, and call the leaders even to uh, account. And um, so the leaders recognise uh, that financial prudence and fair distribution they can't get on they can't get involved with that as well as preaching and teaching and praying um, and perhaps they just go you know what we miss that and perhaps that's a sign that this isn't our gifting and so they invite other people to be chosen invite other people to head up that responsibility um, when the Apostle Paul compares the church to a body he does so in his letters um, so that different people take on different responsibilities I mean, with social isolation, I end up doing the tech and the, uh, um, and the uh, preaching. But the invitation on more normal circumstances that everyone chips in and everyone uh, has a role to play. And uh, Paul suggests that the body works best when everything uh, appreciates its value. And the same is for the church. Uh, some may be... Uh, um, gifted for one role and the others may be gifted for other roles and so the another uh, obvious question is so how are you helping out in the fellowship how are you contributing how are you functioning as part of the body maybe even and this is really challenging because it's almost uh, uh, unparalleled how are you helping today what are you doing today to be a fully functioning member of the church how are you inputting into our communal life. I'm massively grateful. This is a public uh, respect broadcast for Kev B, Tim and Richard who have provided some much needed uh, IT support. Hopefully this stream is working a lot better. You can see me more clearly. Uh, um, there's no breaking up or lagging and that's all because these three guys stepped up and helped and when my cry of plea and help and uh, desperation went out, they were able to respond and uh, uh, give some uh, helpful advice.
So the question is, what have you been doing as part of Elam Church Bubish? What have you done before the lockdown? What are you doing now the lockdown's in place? You know, we're, we're still a church even though we're uh, segregated in our own homes. And what else could you do in the future? What could you do to uh, make this lockdown less painful um, for other people? And the question should reverberate in your mind and, and I'll leave it there to bake and hopefully uh, 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 something will cook. So seven men are chosen by the wider congregation because they are known to be wise and because they love the Holy Spirit. They love his anointing. They are well acquainted with him. Uh, that They are known as Holy Spirit guides. And as we uh, ask how to serve our fellowship, as we ask hopefully each one of us how uh, uh, we get to uh, be good to the other Christians around us. Um, there is this challenge of uh, proving ourselves in advance. It's not uh, rising to the challenge. It is already proving yourself before uh, the challenge comes up. What can you do to show uh, that you are worth trusting and that if people invest time and effort in raising you up, um, that you are prepared for it. When we asked Tim and Rachel um, onto the leadership team, we didn't, uh, it wasn't merely a taste and see, hope for the best, you know what, we've got no idea what these guys will be like. We'd already seen a lot in Tim and Rachel that had caused them uh, 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 to be on our radar as uh, likely new leaders. Um, we had already seen many aspects of their lives which made them an obvious choice for church government. Steadiness, faithfulness, raising their family uh, to love God, a love of the word, a graciousness and gentleness in how they deal with people. Um, all these things, they'd already proved themselves in their daily lives so that when they were asked to help with church life, it, it was almost seamless. Um, and that, that was a beautiful thing to see. And, and uh, uh, that challenge is there for all of us to prove ourselves before we're given responsibility. So I encourage you to seek wisdom and the Spirit's help to be ready in advance of the next challenge, whatever it may be, whatever new thing our church has to deal with, that you already prove yourself faithful and gracious and, and loving the Holy Spirit and familiar with him and, and attentive to his voice. In our Tuesday discipleship class, uh, someone uh, perceptively asked why Luke tells us in his book of Acts that the Christians kept meeting in the Jewish temple precincts for church meetings. Because you can sort of, it's almost unthinkable that Christians today would sort of meet uh, in another uh, uh, religion's uh, place of worship. And, and they were like, well, how can they meet in the temple precincts when they're Christians, when there's a departure uh, uh, from the Jewish faith? And the answer is that Christianity, those early Christians, those very first ones like uh, uh, Peter uh, and John, um, I think they expected a, a transformation of the Jewish faith. They expected uh, Judaism to sort of transform into Christianity. Um, but in today's reading, we find this progress. They start to realise that that's not going to happen and a, a, a new way of thinking is going to have to um, occur. I wonder if you noticed um, 
that Nicholas, the last of the seven to be chosen, um, is, um, is thrown away that he comes from Antioch. Why do they just mention where he comes from? Last week, if you were listening, we had this overview of Luke. And if you were listening, you may have known that Luke came from Antioch. And so Luke is saying, look, this guy is from my hometown. How good uh, uh, is that? Ah, um, um, and, and so um, Luke's making this progress. Suddenly it's not just Palestinian Jews that are running it, but it is Jews from other places beyond Palestine. Uh, these men in new positions are no longer Hebraic Jews. Each of these seven are this new band of Hellenistic Jews uh, whose widows had been selected. So they actually went out into the minority part of the church and raised seven leaders from there so that everyone was uh, properly represented. And chapter six in Acts is yet another step in Luke's point that the church went from being a parochial Jewish sect to this international phenomenon. It was slow, but it was sure. There was this progress. There, there was this uh, 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 advancement. And this is only enforced when Luke says that the whole group was pleased with the decision. You know, it wasn't just something the head honchos made or the group uh, decided and lots of people dissented. And we find in these difficult and delicate matters, an enchanting and prevailing unity continues. And just in case you wondered um, if perhaps there was a resentment or division that you uh, um, that the, the, the head honchos were like dissenting for what the uh, rank and file believers did, the apostles took the choice of the congregation and commissioned them. They laid hands on them, they prayed for them, they released them into their new ministry. This church may have failed those Hellenistic widows originally, but its solution took the fellowship to new heights of care, organisation and inclusion. And that is a, a beautiful thing. Um, it's 11 o'clock, um, but I've got some really good things to say, so I, I make no apologising. Uh, in going on, um, it goes, so with the seven chosen, Luke pays uh, particular attention to Stephen, who tells us uh, he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And uh, we find in Stephen a man who is serious about his relationship with God. He was so serious that everyone around him could see that uh, he loved God. Everyone around him could see that he was familiar with loving God and loving the Holy Spirit and being anointed by him. And so Stephen, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, chosen by his peers to serve the widows, to sort out the money so that uh, the overlooked are no longer the overlooked. Uh, the main apostles are released again into prayer and preaching. And the effect is uh, quite impressive. If you've got a Bible, uh, turn to Acts chapter uh, 6 and we're going to read from verse 7 where we left off. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly 
and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and in Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Remember that diversity uh, of the town. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. We'll leave it there for a moment. The gospel goes out and many more go to faith. Stephen starts to distribute the money with the other uh, six and even more people become Christians. Even, Lotus Luke says, even priests. These were the guys who were invested in the old way. You know, their job was all about the Old Testament practices. And suddenly they were like, Jesus is the Messiah. He is more important than clinging on to old ways of doing things. And they embrace Jesus as their saviour. That is such a dramatic transformation. This church was firing on all cylinders. And even those invested in opposition were coming to faith. When the different parts of the church body function as they should, when each body part of the body pulls together in the same direction, it's not universally true, but it's often true that they get to seize, see the favour of God even more conspicuously. As there is a unity of spirit and effort, their uh, efforts are often blessed by God in new ways. Now Stephen may have sorted out the church finances, but he wasn't going to be restricted to just one thing. There wasn't, uh, uh, he wasn't just going to be the man that deals with the money. Um, the Holy Spirit, who Stephen is obviously great friends with him, uh, friends with. Uh, he empowers this Hellen Hellenistic Jew, this non-Palestinian, to perform powerful signs. Uh, and, and Luke often means by this a sort of healings. And so we find the Holy Spirit doesn't just touch Palestinian Jews, but Greek Jews as well, and uses them mightily. And uh, it's always a challenge, isn't it? Never imagine that because you get up to one thing in church that we're excluded from enjoying other gifts as well. Just because you do one thing in the church doesn't mean you can't do another. We may be good at being generous with our money, but it may be that we are called to lead worship too. It may be that we are good at Sunday school, but you know what? Uh, we have an aptitude for leading and hosting a home group. As Stephen uh, clearly sees God move through his ministry, the inevitable happens. Let me tell you, it's inevitable. He faces opposition. It's not a gilded street where uh, just everyone's waving palm leaves and saying, how wonderful you are, Stephen. We all want to become Christians. There was a widespread, organised and aggravated resistance to Stephen's ministry. I wonder if you've ever faced that. You know, you seem to be operating in the gifts of spirit and yet you're not facing the downward slope of joy that you expected. 
when we are confronted with blindness and ingratitude, we're often phased. We're like, well, how can this be God if this is the response? And how uh, can uh, God, is God really working in me if I am not seeing the fruit that I expected? And so many Christians are gifted, uh, they meet opposition and they question their calling and then they lose heart and get discouraged. And Stephen is a challenge to that. He says, this guy was anointed by God. He did marvellous miracles. He spoke with extraordinary eloquence, yet he too faced um, opposition. But when the opposition comes, Stephen doesn't just sort of retreat into his shell. He leans even more on the Holy Spirit. And this opposition, which is organised and aggravated, uh, cowers at his authority and his insight. They just can't deal with this guy's gifted uh, uh, um, language and arguments. If we know our Bibles, this should remind us of another bit of text. And it says this in Luke chapter 12. Verse 1 in Luke chapter 12. Meanwhile, with a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then in verse 11, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. It's a great bit of um, text. Jesus challenges and aggravates and encourages, says we are worth more, uh, but we've got to be key, careful who we are afraid of and, and not be fearful of representing Jesus to others. Stephen lives out Jesus' own words here. He is fearless in the face of opposition. He is compelling in the face of antagonistic argument and he is confident in the love of God. He is bold and brave. When the Spirit is as dear to us as he was to Stephen, boldness and conviction will be our traits too. To finish, I want us to look at Stephen's last appearance in Luke's narrative of how the church grew. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Thanks Pete for the positive comments. Acts chapter 7. Acts 
it's chapter 7, right, at the tail end of verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. This is after Stephen uh, gave this great sermon. Actually, the longest sermon in Acts is reserved for this Hellenistic Jew. I find that fascinating that Luke wants us to know how important this movement was. Um, and it goes on. Uh, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, again, Luke wants you to know that Stephen loves the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's important to Stephen, that all of Stephen does is uh, uh, comes from the Holy Spirit. And he, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, this sign of authority and dominion uh, uh, and divinity. And verse 56, look, I see the heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees, cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's opposition, though um, they didn't win the argument, they didn't concede the point. This audience gnashes their teeth. There is this visual demonstration of their anger and horror. It's like a howl of anguish. What you are saying is blasphemy, Stephen. Um, and in his sermon previously, uh, we have this wonderful depiction of God's plan of salvation all through the Old Testament and how it uh, uh, travels through the great fathers of the faith and how it culminates in Messiah, in Jesus himself. And that those that killed Jesus are culpable of his murder. And there is this recognition that what he is saying is outrageous. The accusation of blasphemy was hurled at Jesus and he was executed. And I think we have Luke doing the same with Stephen. Stephen is accused of blasphemy, of getting it wrong. This Greek Jew has the privilege of uh, being identified with his master. And so the mob rise up to claim their victim. And as the mob come at him, Stephen's intimacy with the Holy Spirit means that at this terrible moment of fear and pain, he gets a sight by the Holy Spirit of something beautiful and heavenly. He is given this vision of Jesus being at the right hand. We may pass over that without much remark. But Stephen gets to see the reality that he has believed within. He has believed Jesus is the Son of God. He has been preaching about it. He has been convincing others. But now he has seen it himself. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not in the tomb. Uh, Jesus has uh, risen again. He has ascended, not just as a mortal, but as God himself to God the Father's right hand. And he is ruling there and proclaiming his dominion. On the, on the verge of violence and death, 
Stephen tells his onlookers that I see what I am saying is true. It don't just take my word for it. I am telling you, I see it with my own eyes. That God's uh, presence has this glorious truth of Jesus being by his side. As Stephen describes his vision to the mob, they cannot control themselves on the longer, foaming at the mouth. They block his words and stuff their ears. They raise their voices to drown him out. And in that pathetic state, so that they don't hear um, anything, they grab him. And just like Jesus, they drag him out the city in a most deplorable act. And I love this in this great masterful storyteller approach. We are told that there was someone watching. Just in passing, there's this guy called Saul holding the cloaks. You know, the witnesses of Stephen's blasphemy were uh, in, um, had to as part of sort of Jewish process to cast the stones. And so Saul was holding their coats as they got ready uh, to take him down. And Luke makes his passing reference to him. This is the guy that was approving what they did. And he's saying, watch out for that. It's a little giveaway, a plot giveaway. Um, because Saul is going to become very important indeed. Um, and so we move back to Stephen and his last words are again mimicking his saviours. What does he do? He forgives and excuses his persecutors. Jesus did it on the cross. Stephen does it as he faces the stones of his assailants. The spirit of mercy, grace and forgiveness has penetrated Stephen to his core so that his most violent aggressors are given this forgiveness. And finally Luke tells us that despite all the anger, hate and violence, Stephen dies as if falling asleep. I love this I twist, you know. Just the mob rule must have been horrific. The violence and the anger and the shouting. And in their midst, Luke goes, oh, he just fell asleep. You know, it was nothing to him. This was just the first martyr of many. And uh, his body just passed away. And Luke makes this contrast between the violence of the mob to, Luke, uh, to Stephen's body uh, uh, dying. Even the last enemy of death holds no fear for this man of God that loved the Holy Spirit. Friends, Luke tells us this story to let Jews know that Greek speakers are now in. If you're a Palestinian Jew, you have to accept the Greeks. They're now authorised parts of the church. They are not only in, but they have the first martyr in their midst. And Luke will make sure that this point is further made because he goes on, because ultimately he goes, the Gentiles are in too. This is not just for the biological seed of Abraham, but it is for all people. The kingdom of God is for everyone. Stephen explained in his sermon in Acts 7 that we've kind of skipped over, that the same spirit that spoke through the Old Testament spoke through Jesus. And the same spirit that Jesus knew and loved and that raised him from the dead was a friend of Stephen 
And this spirit caused Stephen to minister to the poor, to speak in the face of hardship, and to know and to uh, uh, advance the eternal beauty of the gospel. I want to finish with a, uh, a really cool reading um, from a book by Eugene Peterson. He um, is this uh, old guy um, that wrote the, uh, the Message Translation, which is uh, many of our church's uh, uh, favourite books, um, uh, favourite translation of the, the, of the Bible. And I just want to read you a couple of passages uh, from The Pastor by Eugene Peterson. I think of all the uh, writers I've ever come across, uh, I'd quite like to be pastored by this guy. And it says this. Um, if I were to define for me what makes up the core of Pentecostal identity, it is the lived conviction that everything, absolutely everything in the scriptures is livable. Not just true, but livable. Not just an idea or a cause, but livable in real life. Everything that is revealed in Jesus and the scriptures, the gospel, is there to be lived by ordinary Christians in ordinary times. This is the supernatural core, a lived resurrection and a Holy Spirit core of the Christian life. What Karl Barth expressed dialectically as the impossible possibility. I'd always believe that and I believe it still. And then he says this. Um, I'm sorry for the length of this sermon, but um, I was just enjoying myself too much on Friday. Um, and this is a description of Eugene Peterson's mum, who hopefully will encourage you um, and, uh, uh, and cause you to smile. Uh, and it goes on. Ten months after my parents married, my mother gave birth to me. She was 20 years old. In my early memories of her, memories confirmed by photographs, she was strikingly attractive. Her auburn hair was luxuriously long, never cut during my childhood years. This was for religious, not cosmetic reasons. She was a little over five feet tall with a well-proportioned body. She had a passion for life and Jesus and was zealous to share it. When I was three, maybe four years old, she began taking me with her on Sunday evenings to hold religious meetings in small out-of-the-way settlements of miners and lumberjacks scattered round our valley in the northern Rocky Mountains. There's a great uh, scene setting here uh, of these sort of frontier times. We met in one-room one schoolhouses and grange halls. There were six or seven locations to which we would go, Keeler and Ferndale, Olney, Marion, Hungry Horse and Coram. Who wouldn't like to live in a Hungry Horse? Making a circuit every couple of months. We did it all year long, summer and winter. My father during these years was working long and hard hours as a butcher, cobbling together a meat cutting business. He only shows up marginally in those early memories. I think it is possible that he didn't even know where we were those Sunday nights. He goes on. All this time while my father was working those long and hard hours, determined to put bread on the table and meat in the pot, laying foundations that would undergird my eventual vocation as a pastor, my mother, without knowing what she was doing, was developing an imagination in me for being a pastor. I have no idea how this young woman 
with a small child as her chaperone, managed to gather a congregation of working men from those logging and mining camps to sing gospel songs, listen to gospel stories and let themselves be prayed for on those Sunday nights in the thick of the depression. There's this great picture, isn't there, of this young lady with her little kid challenging the lives of working men. My mother had a plain contralto singing voice, a folk singer voice that years later I recognised in Joanne Baez. She accompanied herself with either accordion or guitar. She led her rustic congregations in country gospel songs, religious folk ballads and old hymns. Life is like a mountain railroad, great speckled bird, old time religion and when the call is called up yonder. The lumberjacks and miners in their clomping hobnail boots, bib overalls and flannel shirts sang along. As they sang the sentimental old songs, they wept, honking into their red bandanas, wiping their tears without embarrassment. Not genteel congregations these, the 25 or 30 men sitting on backless benches. I never remember a woman among them meeting those Sunday nights. Occasionally one of them would spit tobacco juice out an open window. Sometimes they would miss. A wonderful image there. It would be the first time I'd seen that particular athletic feat performed. Then she would preach. She was a wonderful storyteller, telling stories out of scripture and out of life. She elaborated and embellished the stories. Later in life, when I was reading the Bible for myself, I was frequently surprised by glaring omissions in the text. The Holy Spirit left out some of the best parts. Occasionally she would slip into an incantatory style that I have heard since only in African-American churches, catching a phrase at its crest, riding it like a surfer, gathering momentum and then receding into a quiet hush. Friends, let us not settle for sterile religious habit. Let us not settle for tepid, lukewarm faith where we go through the motions. Let us be friends of the Holy Spirit. Let he be our defining characteristic. Let us start bringing the gospel alive to the poor and to the spiritually blind. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Luke's account, especially of Stephen. Heavenly Father, I pray that each of us would have a passion for the gospel like Stephen. That we would know an anointing of the Holy Spirit like Stephen. And that we would go out into this world at large. Uh, suitably anointed for whatever work of service you have for us. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.